0: One of the great things about Bon Appetit and the work that we have done, we've tested these recipes so rigorously that we know the recipes are good. We know that they are great foundations. So you can start to add your story to that, and they end up becoming these things that people cook for a generation.
1: This is Taste. I'm your host, Matt Rodbard. I really enjoyed having Jamila Robinson into the studio. Jamila is the editor-in-chief of Bon Appetit and Epicurious, the storied Condé Nast food publications she took over in September. There's big plans and changes afoot at One World Trade, and we talk about Jamila's vision for the future while looking back at her career working in newspapers in Detroit and Philadelphia. This is a really great talk, and I hope you enjoy our conversation. Jamila Robinson, welcome to This is Taste. How are you?
0: I'm well. I'm so happy to be here. Thank you for having me.
1: Thank you for coming down. Busy schedule. You're the editor in chief of Bon Appetit and Epicurious and a lot to do. And I just am so ha- happy you're in the studio.
0: Oh, I'm so happy to be here. It's a good chance for me to walk across to another part of the city, get out of the office a little bit and um, and have some face time with people. Yeah. It's been, um, it's, so it's really great to see your face yeah. in person.
1: Absolutely. And and you just moved to the city and and are you just finding yourself walking in neighborhoods? I mean, I take myself back 20 years when I moved. That's all I did was walk around.
0: Yeah. I'm a walker. Yeah. I have always been a walker and it's like, you usually walk about three miles a day day. So I walk home from work um, and it gives me a chance to clear my head, see the city, um, see a building that I've never really paid that much attention to, swerve around different things. Um, so I like to walk and, yeah. and I usually w- um, walk more than anything here.
1: Let me ask you, I mean, this is loaded because you, you do a, a best restaurants issue, you, you cover restaurants, but when you're walking, have you found yourself into any like New York City restaurants that you're finding particularly exciting right now?
0: Oh, there are so many exciting places. Yeah. Um, Coloman is yeah. super exciting. Um, I'm looking forward to going to Knox, the new Filipino restaurant. Um, I had a chance to go to Bar Miller for its amakasi, and mm-hmm. that was fabulous. But I also love just walking home and seeing a ramen shop and popping in and sitting in the corner and sipping soup by myself. Yeah. Um but there are so many exciting places. All of the interesting bakeries. Um, I love all of these new plant-based places. Yeah. Um, there's a a, um, a restaurant called Plant a Queen that I've been going mm-hmm. to a lot just because it's it's easy. It's great for lunch, um, and so I've been having a lot of fun just walking around and you know, having great Indian food and having a great sandwich or just popping in and having a coffee and watching people Whip up an an americano for me, and, yeah, so that I can continue on my walk.
1: Yeah, exactly. Need low caffeine. I mean, what I what you're what you're telling me now, and like what I have observed about your career, which is like really exciting about you taking over BA. Is you know you're a reporter at heart. You know you worked in newspapers, Detroit Free Press and uh, the Philadelphia Inquirer. Like we'll we'll go over some of your history. Um, I want to ask you, you're the third uh, BA EIC to appear on the show, and I just want to know. You know, how are you going to put your own stamp on BA personally as the editor-in-chief?
0: Oh, that's a great question. Um, I think my predecessors have really stood me in great stead. Um, to have a brand with a storied history, with great interviews, exciting recipes, and all of those things. But for me, what I really want to bring, Bon Appetit has always been about the um, cooking and culture. And I want to expand that idea. We're thinking about how food culture is for everyone. Okay. And really bringing more of a community lens Um not only more stories about people, more profiles, um, and but ha- having an opportunity to deepen relationships. I don't necessarily think I have to put my stamp on the brand. I think what I'd like to do is introduce the brand to more people yeah. and expand its audiences and help develop a relationship um, with BA for the future. That's hard.
1: That's hard work because, you know, expanding audience in this day and age, you know, we're really segmented culture get more audience and I we think about it here at Taste too.
0: Well I think it, it is work. Yes. It is it is work. It but it is thinking about how people receive information and expanding the idea of the kinds of words we put around food when we were use words like classic. Yeah. Uh, and especially if you take something like a classic Thanksgiving recipe. Well, what does that mean? Does that mean for some people it might mean mashed potatoes, but for me it means macaroni and cheese? Mm -hmm. So, when we want to expand those audiences, so that means we need both or we have to find ways to bring in more. And so, I like to think about things like that. How do we ask for more? How do we think about how the audiences that we don't have, we know that. People will want cookies during the holiday season. Yeah. There's
1: some real gimmies in the whole yes. cycle of food media, yeah.
0: But if there, if, if we have a chance to bring the people who have coquito during the holiday season, that is expanding our audiences, and we can bring both of those, all of those folks together. So
1: you joined the staff in September and I just want to ask you about the process because to me, it feels extremely challenging because you're like trying to reinvent and do your own thing and try to put your own stamp on it, but also put out issues at the same time. How has the process been like since taking over in September?
0: Oh, it's been great because we have um, teams that are uh, really thinking about this idea of food culture for everyone. Yeah. And for Epicurious to bring the culture to cooking. And when you, when you have a mission statement like that, it gives you an opportunity to drill down on how to tell those stories. How do we, food culture for everyone is the story about the deaf beekeeper from our January, February issue. Um, how this woman who supplies a lot of New York City restaurants with honey, but can't hear the bees. So what is her life like? How does she bring her knowledge and expertise to the apiary? Mm. It's a food culture story. It's a story about accessibility, but it's an opportunity for us to bring new audiences in who may not think about whether or not your restaurant supplier mm-hmm. can hear.
1: It's uh, We're a very ableist society, right? It's true. And to know that this exceptional honey, and I'm imagining, I've not read the piece, but this is great honey, um, is from somebody who does not have hearing. It's powerful. It's really powerful.
0: Yeah, it takes us to another place. Yeah. We love telling stories about where our food comes from. But sometimes I don't think we tell enough stories about the people who bring us that food. Or, you know, there's like the earnest farmer, because that that is a kind of earnest farmer story. yeah, yeah. yeah. But how do we make that, how, we, how do we take that up a level? How do we make the brands more inviting for people who maybe have a relationship with us, but if you are in a hearing impaired community, we can deepen that relationship yeah. and make sure that you know that food culture is for you as well.
1: I love that you bring up Ernest farmer because we, we we get pitches like that all the time. We're like, we want to cover agriculture. We want to cover the source. Like origin is super important, but we still have an audience to serve and we don't want it to be like earnest. That's like kind of a pejorative term in, in writing. You don't want to ever be too naive or earnest is a complicated word. Anyways, I love that you bring that up.
0: I think that we do a lot of similar kinds of stories and the risk that we take is that we end up falling into tropes. And we have a lot of stories that we've seen before. So I always like to think about how to make a story, even if it's about the earnest farmer, How to make that exciting, how to make that more inviting. Can we add a level of service to that and give people more information about how to get products from those farmers or how to visit their farm, how to think about what their impact is? Can you donate to them? If we add a level of service, then some of those things that might end up getting a little bit cliche. Yeah we take them out of the cliche and we change the relationship that people have with those stories.
1: Let me ask you about the job itself. Give us something that our, re- our listeners might not even realize that the, the, the editor-in-chief job entails. I mean, Condé Nast can be a complicated place. It's well covered in the media and I know plenty of people work there. So I, I just want to know, how are you negotiating it? I, I, I respect it. I need to say that clearly. I respect being EIC at Condé Nast. It is not the easiest job.
0: It's not the easiest job, but one of the misconceptions um, is that it's just the magazine, but right, it right, is right. events, it's newsletters, it is being the face of the brand, it is going and doing opportunities like doing interviews and talking about our work, it is being an advocate and an ambassador, but it's also a place about people that's actually quite, um, a, that's a great place to work that has Um, that cares a lot about its staff, I'm thrilled to to be working there. I have a lot of fun going Into work every day. And I was one of the people who thought that I would never want to go back into an office after working from home for three years. But I've really enjoyed the camaraderie of sitting with the staff and brainstorming and drawing on a whiteboard and thinking about ideas, but also thinking about how do you take a storied brand? The job is taking this storied brand and expanding it to as many people as possible, but also being the chief ambassador yeah for the brand yeah which is for me exciting but i'm a well adjusted introvert so ooh that's <laughs> a
1: great way to put it i i'm yeah. I,
0: you know you have enough mu- you have enough musical theater yeah. and you will see, and you know when to turn it on but there are times that i just want to sit and be quiet and read the book by myself yeah um so the complication is how do you structure your time and structure your personality to be constantly in service of the brand. Yeah. And that's something I don't know if the EICs, if the editors-in-chief talk about that a lot in the adjustment of being someone who works for the brand or he is an editor for a large publication versus being the editor yeah, of a large like publication.
1: Do you talk to like Will Welch or David Remnick? Do you guys like swap notes? I mean, we
0: swap notes. I figure you um, do, have, yeah. And what a great set of peers! Yeah. I mean, think about it. those are my peers: Radika Jones, David Remnick. Yeah, R- 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 Radika
1: Jones too, of course. Got mentioned Vanity Fair, of course. I mean, it's storied publications. That's why I say it's complicated because it's like, you know, the the focus is on because like everyone loves the work.
0: I mean. Absolutely, and it, it. But it is, and it is great work, and it's exciting work. Yeah. And so I think about it. I come in every day with a certain level of gratitude and I think about what I get to do. I get to craft stories about food and culture and ideas. And it's the only thing I've ever yeah. wanted to do. So, so, it. so even
1: you're tickled pink,
0: I'm tickled. Yeah, I'm, yeah. I'm, I'm very much tickled.
1: Um, com- speaking of complicated, I can't let it pass today. We're recording it. There's a walkout. The Conde union staff have walked out off, off of, you don't have a staff in your, in your building or many aren't there. My question is pointed, it's 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 truly this. I mean, what do you say to staff who are listening to the show or others in the industry um, who have decided to walk out? You're the leader of this publication. And I'd like to get our listeners get a sense because I think there's maybe some some ideas about what it means to be a management and, and union at Conde but let me get your take.
0: Well, I would say that I I don't think that management and union environments. We are not in conflict with each other. We are actually partners uh, who are negotiating a, a bargaining agreement. And and I think that that's important for our workplaces so that staffers feel comfortable having that kind of environment. Um, but it is a process and it's a process that we're going through. And, um, and that's what I, I say to my staff is, um, let's go through the process.
1: Yeah. Together. When you were working, um, in newspapers, um, were you part of unions?
0: I was part of the union. I was, um, part of that storied newspaper strike from 1995 with the Detroit free press yeah. and the Detroit news. So my history with, um, unionized environments is being on both sides of the table. Um, and I always think of, um, the publications or the organization and the union as partners. I think we all want a fair and equitable workplace. And that is, I think, what everybody is working towards.
1: Let's talk about Epicurious. Um, I guess the question is, how does a digital first food publication like stay relevant in, this, in these very noisy times? I mean, really, really lots of noise out there.
0: Oh, it's such an exciting time for Epicurious. We have... More than 60,000 recipes on Epicurious, we have the Epicurious app, and we really think about Epicurious as the platform for cooking. This is where you're going to save your recipes. This is where you're going to cook for another generation. Um, we're re- very excited about our new project, the BA 56. Um, these are. What is that? BA 56 is the Bon Appetit 56. These are 56 recipes that you're going to be cooking for the next generation. Um, some of our editors combed our archive and started to think about how tastes have changed since 1956 when the publication was started. And looking across everything that we've done with the former gourmet, with Epicurious, with Bon Appetit, and all the syndicated recipes that we have put together or brought in from cookbooks and other publications over the last, um, since 1956, we've put together a list of 56 recipes that we think define what is a Bon Appetit cook now. And all of those recipes, including all 60,000, mm-hmm. plus these Key 56 can be found on the Epicurious app. This is our subscription product, but I really do think about it as the platform for that is gonna house all of your recipes, that is gonna give you um, all of the tips and tricks, all of the utility, all of the videos. If you need to brinoise a carrot, we have videos that are gonna tell you how to do that. And all of those things are, are housed in this one app. We think about Bon Appetit bringing, um, it is food culture for everyone. Epicurious brings the culture to cooking. It is the utility. That's how we stay relevant. You have to think about what people are doing with their time. How do they want to spend their time? And so, you know, every publication is digital first now. Um, I like to throw out those words yeah. <laughs> um, and say, you know, there is no, yeah. there is no print, there is no digital. This is we are a multi-platform organization, and Epicurious is one of our platforms that we believe is 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 the most useful way for cooking and um and it's the mo- and, and we have the most recipes. Yeah, you've seen it. Like, hey, arc- I'm glad you like I-
1: struck my digital first line cuz I, I I feel like I was That's <laughs> striking. No, 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 it's good cuz like it, it is kind of like every publication is digital first Are you kidding me like print first. We <laughs> only do Although uh, actually my my colleague Eliza Barbanal former BA staffer. Cake Scene, that is a print-first publication. So they're very rare, though.
0: It's very rare. But even the print-first publications are multi-platform because of how you push them in social, how they show up in newsletters, how you promote them in television and video. So everything, there is a digital lens to everything. And I always like to think about what how are people going to use that information? Yeah. There will always be a place for print products, whether those are books or magazines or zines or note cards and all of those beautiful things. I love paper and I love texture and I love those kinds of things that we get to print out. Yeah. And um, But I also think about if you're going to print it out, it needs to be very, very special. So I like to think about how can we print the best magazine. Into
1: that, into that ethic. If we're going to put the time in and have it printed in Northern Canada, make sure it's good.
0: It's got to be great. Um,
1: uh, Start so Detroit. Mid nineties. <laughs> what? So what is your job at the free press? Are you, are you, uh, you going to governmental meetings? Are you doing food? Are you doing sports? Like, let's go over some of your early career there.
0: So my early career started at the free press when I was in high school. Amazing. Um, I went to public school and the, um, Detroit Free Press had a program called the High School Journalism Program, and we produced our high school newspapers at the Free Press. So we go into the newsroom once a month with all of our stories, all of our things edited, and we write, edit, design, put everything into the system, into the content management system, and produce a newspaper every month. And that was in partnership with... Um, So some very extraordinary journalists in the mid-90s. In the mid-90s, the Detroit Free Press was probably number six or seven of the top newspapers in the country with a circulation of about 700,000. And so so a lot of big names that you know now, Robin Gavon, Charles Blow, um, these were people that helped us produce our newspaper. Yeah. And Wayne, Frank Bruni. And so my job, my, so my first job, one of my first jobs was as a high school apprentice. And I spent the summer of my high school senior year working at the Free Press writing about music. Oh, wow. um, Because I wanted to be a classical music critic. And um, Dr. Louise Ritchie, who ran the program, said, oh, that's interesting. You have this love of classical music. I was a very good violinist at, at one time. And she says, we're going to put you in pop music and we're going to team you up with Gary Graff, who was the pop music critic at the time. So my job became writing reviews about music.
1: Wow. And going to concerts
0: and going to concerts. I went to one of the first concerts of Boys to Men and wrote one of the first reviews of Motown Philly Wait. When, I, when I was a high school student. Wait, you
1: heard the song before it was in the radio
0: I got a, a I had a box of CDs and a lot of people didn't have CD players at the time. I happen to have a CD player because I'm from a family of early adopters and I'm playing the CD and I thought, oh yeah, that's gonna be a hit. Oh yeah <laughs> and was very excited about it and got to write. About boys to men. I mean, the
1: Michael Bivens rap in it, Alone, It's the Bridge, that's like...
0: Motown Philly, Back Again. It's such a
1: great song. I remember being at nature camp, I think I was like seven or eight, and some kid came up with the single, I had a single, and, and that song is...
0: It's still, and it it still sounds fresh.
1: <sighs> you put on a party, people like are not hating it, it's good.
0: But when I was, but I was, I interned at the Detroit Free Press one summer, I was the intern of the year. Oh yeah, right on. And...
1: Overachiever. I I was an overachiever. Jamila, there's a theme here. Let's get real.
0: And then my, and right after I graduated college, I um, came on as a features designer and copy editor. And um, I was producing feature sections um, writing headlines, editing copy, and also designing pages because I had a real interest in art and graphics and design, and that became that was my job. And one of the sections that I got to work on was the food section.
1: Were you doing cork at the time?
0: We were using cork.
1: Cork Express, baby. We were
0: cork Express. You know That's it. What I, That's where
1: I learned to lay out on
0: layout and design and
1: pasting up, right? And
0: pasting up yep. with a little blue pen, wax and machines, wax machines. I. Yeah. And h- how many clothes did I ruin with the mat? wax machine? Oh,
1: me too. I, I did that in my college paper. I mean, the wax machines are the, the bane of your existence.
0: But we were also in a union environment, so we were not allowed to touch the type. Uh. So you had to just write with a blue line yep. and the um, printers would come and cut the type apart. And um, but again, it was a lot of change in technology at the time. And we were learning we had all of these things called Apple computers. Yeah. Um, the blueberry ones. The blueberry. Yeah. Well, they, these, were, these were the two E's. We were designing on oh, yeah. two E's back then. Yep, yep. And then um and then started um and then we got color monitors. And that changed everything. Absolutely. And but it was a very exciting time because I was working with these who are now storied food writers. Um, Frank Bruni was the critic at the time and really understanding how he wrote about restaurants and then how um, the late John Tenastic wrote about food and wrote about farmers markets. And I was so um, inspired because I loved cooking and grew up in a household where like, my mom didn't cook very much was not something that she's interested in. We didn't have cookbooks. I had to check them out at the library if I was really interested in something. And I cook primarily at my grandmother's house. So I got to play with food in a way that I didn't get to do at home unless I was with my grandmother. And I got to write all of these interests. If you don't have good, delicious As (laughs) as <laughs> verbs or or as adjectives, we had to think about all the words that we could use to say something is yeah. good, very, very good. And is it delicious? Is it fantastic? Um, how does it feel in your mouth? How, what are the words? Is it smoky? Is it, um, is, is it scintillating? And that changed how I wrote headlines and how I used language because I could not rely on the cliches of this is good. It's, this is very, very you, good.
1: You, way you put it is like being a food writer early in your career is probably the best training it's great for all sorts training. of writing because it, it is a narrow, uh, narrow lens that we have to like look at things through. It's we don't we can't talk about uh, it has to be more about objective like reporting about what's on the plate versus like theoretical like what music you're hearing in your
0: in your in your mind. Absolutely. And it allows you a lens to talk to people. Everyone yeah. has a favorite restaurant, favorite sandwich, favorite coffee, um, something they, they grew up, a smell that either they love or repulses them. And if you ask someone how their family cooks rice, it will tell you everything you know need to know about them. I grew up around a lot of um, people from um, Middle Eastern countries And so they, so there was a lot of tadic, but we ate rice aroni because my mother worked. So it tells you all of these social and cultural things by asking people what they're eating and what their relationship is to it. And having that training early in my career taught me a lot about how you can use food to broaden so many parts of journalism, and how you know even. If depending, no matter what's happening outside, where um there is political unrest or conflict, people still have to eat. They still have to clothe themselves. They still want to entertain themselves in some way. And by being able to do that through food, you can open up all of yeah. these conversations about other things. That's why we
1: love, the, love covering it so much. You, you said it so well. I, I can't let it pass. We'll, we'll move on from Detroit, but Lindsey Green. Like let's shout out Lindsay Green's been on the Lindsay show. Lindsay Green, yeah, absolutely amazing critic of the of the, of the Detroit Free Press. Uh, remember that name? She's been on the show. I'll link to it in the show notes.
0: Emerging voice winner of James Beard Award, True, finalist yeah. for Pulitzer Prize. Um, not only someone to watch, but just a great case study in how we can write about food and and culture, cities, conflict, ideas. How it really, food really can be the center of everything. I think Lindsey Green's writing is some of my yep. favorite writing. It,
1: it's, it's well said. And we'll skip over you are to net, We'll skip over some of your other work, which is tremendous. And I'd like to just a, a skip to Philadelphia because I want to get back to BA. What excites you about running a city food section?
0: A city food section, you have the opportunity to tell readers why restaurants matter. In most cities, 10 years ago, 15 years ago, the anchor of a retail district was a retailer. It was a, a department store. In the last 10 or 12 years, that's always a restaurant. So being able to tell people why that restaurant is important to their community, and especially in a place like um, in a city like Philadelphia, La Cantina La Martina mm-hmm. um, is a restaurant that is was in the center of the opioid crisis, and they changed the entire neighborhood by putting a restaurant there and hiring people. Where the food comes from, how it's distributed, how people are hired, and labor all happens in a restaurant in a community, in a city. And it can change from year to year and day to day. We saw that a lot in the pandemic. but also giving people the opportunity to show how to spend their time. It gives them some tours and lens in their own city. I'm in New York, and I'm seeing all of the, going to all of the different neighborhoods. But when I came here as a tourist or you know, coming here for work, I'm in my hotel. I'm going to the restaurant. I'm supposed to go eat at that weekend, but I'm not exploring and having those relationships and walking down the street. And that's exciting to tell people, especially in a city, to be able to do that. It's not only the restaurant, but it's it's the restaurant and the museum. It's the restaurant and the sporting venue. It's the... It's the cafe and the barbershop. It's all of these things that make a city burn. They're unified by food. There's always Absolutely. a restaurant in
1: that equation. I love city guides. I, I really get excited when I read a really good one um, and that has a review, um, has a recipe, has some great service, has a tuber, has a personality profile, has some news. I have to say, I think the LA Times food section is the best right now in the country. They're, they I read it every week. It is so good.
0: I would not argue with that. I think they do some extraordinary work. They have such a great foundation, such a great food city, but it's not only the writing, but it's also the design, yes. the photography, and the way they take you inside the restaurant scene and uh, in across the farming districts and
1: Yeah.
0: Oh, I'm going to tell you about this fig tree. The storytelling is just so remarkable. So I would not I wouldn't. I wouldn't argue.
1: I hope we can get through this patch of, uh, you know, layoffs and all the crazy craziness happening at LA Times. And um, I wish them all the best, those guys over there. And I wanted to ask you a little bit about the city section, which you're really astute to and, and have a long history, because there is a special um, chemistry with um, your your readership in your city. It's like where to go, what to do for this like community. It could be Cleveland. It could be you know Toronto. How do you bring that energy to BA? Because I feel you wanna give your readers rex where to eat, what to do.
0: I'm really excited about doing so much more of that. We have a feature called Best in Town and and it is taking a local a local expert taking you through their city. So we're going to take you to Chicago and see some of the best hot dogs and understand the the essence of a Chicago hot dog, the DNA of a Chicago hot dog, that poppy seed bun. You've got to have some pickles. You've got to have tomatoes. You've got to have that little salad. That is essentially Chicago. And being able to tell you through a hot dog a story about Chicago. So we're going to be doing so much more of taking people into cities with experts and telling them all of the quirky places they can eat. We're going to Portland. And those are features you're going to start to see every single month. I think it's really important to have relationships with cities and that a magazine like Bon Appetit Really should be on the pulse of cities not only in the U.S. but across the um, a- across the globe. Being able to tell you about all of the special restaurants in Lima, Peru. I'm taking you on a new insider's guide to Paris, where we go on a jollof rice trail. You know, we would have gone to all the, you know the cafes and bistros, but Paris is so different than it was twenty years ago. And we want to go in the lens of Lin, uh, of of Lin- Tr- Lindsay Tremuda, the new Parisienne. So, what is the, how does that look like in food? So, we're I want to take inspiration from other kinds of city guys, whether that is through travel or through art, and then bring being able to bring that all the fascinating restaurant and culinary experiences, whether, you know, through dining and travel through cafes and bakeries, but also like this little cafe in Portland, that's also a record store that gives you just a well-rounded experience.
1: Let's move on to home cooking, uh, which is another big part of, of BA, the BA universe. I read your editor's letter, got a nice kitchen. So let me ask you about what do you enjoy about home cooking? Just straight up, Jamila.
0: I get lost in the kitchen. I say in my editor's letter that it is where I find energy and creativity. If I need to think really hard about something, I dive into making a pound cake or I roll out some pastry. I take my aggression out on Mm -hmm. a salad spinner. I love cooking at home. It is when you eat at restaurants a lot. I find so much energy of being able to cook for myself and put something really beautiful together and sit down. I think cooking is an act of love, and even if you're cooking for yourself, that is like you are feeding, you're refilling your cup literally yeah and literally so and I but I also love having company. I love having people over when I invite people over i I cook um I love making pies and stews and pastry and I make pasta from scratch and and I love being able to put together a four or five course meal for my friends with a spectacular dessert and a show what's stopping. the dessert let's
1: go there what, what's what's your what's your one that you're gonna like have most times
0: it depends um I make pies oh cool I, I'm really into pies because I think you know cakes are I I have a a philosophy that cakes are for celebrations, but pies are for sharing. Buy it. And
1: Buy it. so you're a pie over cake. And so.
0: every everything can be, a, anything can be a pie. Not everything can be a cake, but yeah. almost anything can be a pie, pot pie, pie, pizza pie, quiche. Um, but for dessert, I'll probably make some kind of pie. I also make ice cream from scratch. Usually there's ice cream. Do you have um, a,
1: are you doing like Paco Jet, not to quote the menu, uh, or are you doing like KitchenAid attachment?
0: Um, I use a Breville um, yeah. Smart Scoop and a good one. I, I just go, I might, and, and usually one. I make three or four at a time. Nice. I'll make the custard and then I'll break the custard and I'll usually have a sorbet and yeah. I usually like to have at least one plant-based one for my friends who can't have dairy. you consider uh, it? into that yeah well you know i have um i have some food allergies i'm allergic to peanuts i'm that person yeah on the airplane that they make the announcement about oh yeah yeah i'm i have a life-threatening allergy to peanuts yeah. i'm allergic to some tree nuts so i'm very sensitive about other people's dietary restrictions um because i don't always remember to disclose that i'm allergic to peanuts and then i walk into a room and i can't breathe
1: Oh it it just really just fill you up with that. Oh yeah. wow, wow. So
0: I so I like to think about how can I be inviting? It's like, it's like that's an invitation um to know what people's dietary restrictions are and making some adjustments and um and thinking about like my little goddaughter can't have dairy. Yeah. Um so okay, I'm always going to have something that's non-dairy. I want to have something that is gluten-free. I want to have something that is um, that people can just sink into very comforting, and then being able to let people put things together. Um, so usually um, every year for the holidays, I throw a pie party, mm. and um, and I make eight or twelve different kinds of pies, sweet and savory. Um, you fill up on on pies.
1: Yeah, it sounds like a, a quite the 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 prep. It's a lot of pies. It's a lot of pies. I like, but it's, yeah. it's fun. It's fun. All right, so let me ask you about about the grocery store CPG land products you know I'm personally really interested in this world and I think it's a bit of a boom happening in the covering of of new products I, I wonder do you have any favorite new products or founders that you come across and you're in reporting
0: I mean some of the products that I'm I'm interested in are are spices like the diaspora company um... There are you know, all of the spices that you would get from like a burlap and barrel that really are well sourced. Um, I actually don't use a lot of um, packaged foods at home. i I go i'm a I'm a market person. I go to the farmer's market. I walk, I grab I'm a person who goes to the grocery store every day. Mm-hmm. I go see what's there, and I chop up what I decide whatever I'm going to eat. And I will make the meal from scratch. From there, I do. I have found some very interesting, like peppers. I love to go to farmers markets and buy what they have locally sourced and things that they've jarred. So it really depends on what's happening at the market. Those are the things that I'll buy, especially honeys, um, things that are fermented. I'm very, I am very interested in fermented beverages, and and, and finding like all of these like interesting bubbly things, um, the spritzes and things of that nature. Um, but for cooking, I'm usually, I'm, I'm usually like, you know, go chop up your own garlic kind all of. All right. Food. Right
1: on. Do you follow founders journeys? Do you follow like a, a founder story? Are you interested in
0: that world? Not really. Not really. <laughs> I mean, I am, I mean, I, I, I mean, I am from a how can I say from a, um, I'm interested in, in those things from a, from a, um, from a business standpoint. Um, but in my own cooking, I'm, I'm more of the farmer's market person.
1: Last question. Do we have too many recipes?
0: Can there ever be too many recipes?
1: You. That's the follow-up question.
0: <laughs> um, recipes are a kind of story of form of storytelling. And I think to, Consider that there are too many recipes would be as if to say there are too many stories. Their guideposts, what changes is the relationship you have with that recipe and how do you build a relation a, a relationship with that recipe? Some things, my grandmother's sweet potato pie is a very, very specific recipe, but I tweak it a little bit um, because of how I want to make the pastry and how I want to press. How I want to crimp the, the, the crust, how I want to use a little bit of egg white, a little egg wash around the crust and then sprinkle some sugar on it. Those are things that you add to a recipe. You start to tell your own little story with that recipe. So I don't think that there can be too many. Um, I do think that one of the great things about Bon Appetit and the work that we have done, we've tested these recipes so Um, rigorously that we know the recipes are good. We know that they are great foundations. We know that they are great starting points. So you can start to add your story to that. And they end up becoming these things that people cook for a generation. So much so that if you remember that Jimmy Fallon meme, he's talking about his mother cooking, you know, her, her, her cheesecake And come to find out it was, a oh, this cheesecake is amazing. And and everybody talks about it and loves it. Turns out it was a Bon Appetit recipe, but it became her recipe. And I think that when you have 60,000 recipes, you're going to find the ones that help define who you are and how you want to cook and what that means.
1: I think you got yourself a cover star, Jimmy and his mom. (laughs) <laughs> cover a BA,
0: I think so. I think. So. Would you ever
1: put a person on the cover again? That happened like one time, right? That was like a big controversy. I
0: am not opposed to having people on the cover. I, I am. Thank you. I am. Yes. I think it's very, very important that we be sure to include people and food. That that there, we don't put distance between who is cooking. And who is serving? Sometimes, especially with women, we will show them only you know from the chest up or show their hands, but never faces and presence and bodies and shoulders. And I think it's really important to have as many people in um, in the pages of and throughout the brand in the pages of the magazine and throughout the brand to be sure that we are bringing the humanity of food. With the stories of food, with the recipes, because you can't disconnect one from the other. The more we start to center faces along with our food and seeing how people interact, we start to connect and build community. I'm into
1: that. Let's 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 see some some faces on the cover of BA. I'm
0: I'm I'm into it.
1: I'm into it too. I love it, Jamila. And this is Taste. We has guests about the discerning taste. So to close this interview, here's a little rapid fire, fast and furious taste check. Are you ready? I'm ready. The best fruit, pears. The worst vegetable,
0: broccoli. Can't get it past my nose.
1: Okay, so broccoli, steamed raw. It's all I bad. can
0: smell it before it arrives at the table. It's just one of those. You know, some people are so sensitive to cilantro. Yes, yes, yes. I'm sensitive to broccoli. That way, I can smell it before it arrives.
1: I I empathize with you. I'm I'm the same way with a couple things. Mm-hmm. Not, not, but I. I I love it. I love that you're honest about that,
0: mushrooms right? do the same thing yeah. to me. I'm learning to eat mushrooms. I'm learning to enjoy them, but before I could not get them past I've had to have them yeah. a lot to get them past my Chanterelle nose.
1: Chanterelle butter, lots of it. No. You're you're you grimace. It's <laughs> fair response. But what so truffles, what about truffles?
0: I I don't get excited about no. truffles. I I, I I enjoy them when I have them. Yeah. But it's not I would not purposely order them and say, oh my gosh, I've got to have these shaved truffles, yeah. white shaved truffle, because it's it, it I don't get excited yeah. about them as much as I get excited about a pear. Yeah. Or or I get excited about um honey nut squash. It's like so that. good.
1: Uh your uh the best dessert.
0: Lemon tarts.
1: So agreed. Is there a, a way to articulate what you like about a lemon tart? What 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 needs to be in a lemon it's tart? It's the
0: spark of the zest. It's that just the sweetness of the meringue. Um, it's the energy, the brightness, and I think a lemon tart is always it. It tells you to always be bright and energetic, huh. um, and especially if you have like a, a very good. Crispy short bet crust, and those like you have to break through it a little bit. You have to break through to get us get spark.
1: Yeah, yeah, right on. I like that. And
0: so I love a little yeah, a little
1: like a little bit of elbow into it to break it. Yeah,
0: yeah, it's it, my favorite. It's my favorite thing.
1: Your favorite New York City restaurant right now?
0: <sighs> That's a tough one. Yeah, because there are so many. I think Atta Mix is the best restaurant in New York City.
1: Absolutely. James Beard agrees. James Beard agrees. New New York's region.
0: World's 50 best, number eight on the list. Um, I think what JP and Elliot are doing, not only with modern Korean, but the way that they are collaborating across the entire globe to help reimagine what fine dining can be and its collaboration across the globe and how that inspires other people, that's such a transformational way of working, of being able to break out of the competition if they're, I mean, you know, for lack of a better word, but to think that a chef of that level is always inviting other people into his kitchen to cook in his kitchen and learning from those chefs. And I think some of those exciting collaborations, whether that's Lito 84 from Italy or Quintanil uh, from Mexico City, these are some of the best cooks on the planet. And... Even if you don't get to Mexico City, you can go to Atamex and have that experience and and experience both dishes, the modern Korean and the modern Mexican. That's a kind of collaboration of bringing the world closer together that I think something that food does. And that for me makes it the best restaurant.
1: Your favorite American fast food chain
0: popeyes yeah. louisiana fried chicken it's
1: truly uh i think top two for me mcdonald's is one number two is popeyes so good
0: fried chicken sandwich it's there's my house in washington there's a popeyes uh maybe two blocks away and they start frying chicken at 10 45 a.m
1: yeah. and it's hitting your house it's it's going in it's
0: i allow myself a, a popeyes fried chicken sandwich periodically yeah um I, there was a time you that I was it. going every day. <laughs> um, I love, yeah. I love Popeye's fried chicken.
1: It's really good. And uh, to bridge the Korean comment previously, uh, in Seoul there is a chain of Korean uh, restaurants called Mom's Touch, and I tell you that that chicken sandwich might rival Popeye's. I Just have saying.
0: heard about that chicken sandwich. Some yeah. folks were saying you have to go to Seoul if yeah. you like fried chicken sandwiches. It's that's the place that you're going to want to go that flight yeah working on it
1: you're working on it. it's going to be great so i think i think uh popeye's I, I love it last question about popeye's the biscuits
0: i it's it's not the biscuits for me it's the fries oh interesting i love i, and not I love the red beans not the red beans not okay. the size too much Fair. it's always the fries
1: I've never had the fries of Popeyes. Ever oh my, in my gosh,
0: they're so seasoned. They're delicious. They're they have like crispy edges. They're they're fantastic.
1: So hungry right now. This is I a, know. I lo- this is so. Oh meat. my gosh! All right, a couple more. Your favorite cookbook of all time,
0: the Balthazar Cookbook uh, from two thousand six, um, Nassariad. Um, those are some of the most perfect recipes. There is a trout. Filet that they used to cook at the restaurant, um, trout filet with warm, it's a warm spinach salad with lentils cooked in with carrots and like a mirepoix and a little bit of lardon. And I cook that in the summer. People think that it's amazing. The moule marionnire, the um, the steamed mussels marionnire, it's a fantastic recipe. I juge it a little bit and add a you know, a little bit. Of paprika, but it's a perfect recipe. The onion soup, I, like you want to see some people lose their mind. It's amazing. Make a li- make yeah. make that particular. Shocking
1: amount of Gruyere. It Just, is it's a lot of gruyere. shocking yep.
0: amount of Gruyere. Shocking amount of time. It's a perfect <laughs> recipe. That's my favorite cookbook.
1: It's really cool you say that. We wrote a tribute, I think about four years ago on Taste and I'll link to it in the show notes. That is a great book.
0: It's a really good book. Really, it's, and it's a beautiful book. It's nice. My other, I, I want to mention one other yeah, <laughs> cookbook sure. that I really love. It is the Marshall Fields Community Cookbook from about I don't know, maybe 1987 or 1990, something like that. I bought it when I was interning in Minnesota and it's tattered, but there are some amazing recipes and they're just family recipes, but there's a killer carrot cake. I make a very, very, very – I don't think anybody can make carrot cake except for me.
1: I love that. I love that statement. I make a
0: very, very good <laughs> carrot cake. And, it's ba- and the recipe I use is based on one in that community By the way, cooking. you just said
1: a boot, by the way. You said a boot when you were referencing that. Because mar- then you said Minnesota. I'm like, oh, oh you yeah. connected the two. It's,
0: Yeah, and sort of the Canadian – you know, when you're from Detroit, you grew up listening oh, – yeah. you grew up watching Canadian television and you start to pick up oh, yeah. those – Vocal quirks. Yeah. That is one of that is one of yeah. my quirks. I, I, no, I say great. that sometimes. I, it
1: just takes me back home. Yeah. Yeah. I love it. All right. Uh, a few more. Um, your favorite city outside America to visit for food? Oh, Paris. Yeah. Hands down. It's no
0: greater city in the world. Paris is the only one.
1: Have you read Ruth Röschel's new um, new novel? I
0: haven't read it yeah, yet. I'm I read it on my list. I, it's yeah. on my list of things to read. But Paris is so special. I mean, I'm, it's the place that, I think a lot of I, I think I can speak for some Black women when I say this, but it, for for me, it's a place where I really understood what freedom is by going to Paris. That lineage of Josephine Baker and all the women who went to Paris, I feel that acutely when I'm there. Um, not it's not only just a great city and it's beautiful, but it is a place where you start to f- understand. I will I'll speak for Jamila here. Paris is a place where I really started to understand my Americanness um, by going to Paris. But there's no no more beautiful city, no more, no better place to eat.
1: That's a great sentiment. I really, I really respect that and love that statement. A cuisine you would like to learn more about?
0: I love learning about indigenous cuisines and those indigenous food ways and how they impact The future, when I think about the ways that if we understood Asian and South American and African food ways, the way we understand the Mediterranean diet, that will give us ways, a pathways to take a look at climate, reduce our meat consumption, um, understand how to use the earth. Um, When we think about um, regenerative crops, Elevation, all of these things, a lot of techniques that were um, helmed by women. So I'm very interested in indigenous food ways and the ways that we can bring so much of that back if we pay attention to the ways that people ate thousands of years ago.
1: Last one, your favorite sandwich.
0: Ice cream sandwich.
1: First time that's been up, we've asked that question to maybe 65, 70 people who never said the ice cream. You are... Love that. Ice cream
0: sandwich. I make make a mean ice cream sandwich. Sometimes I throw parties and I just make ice cream. My ice cream social is an ice cream sandwich. I love
1: this. Jamila Robinson, thank you so much for joining This Is Taste.
0: Thank you.
2: Hey Matt, how are you doing?
1: Hey Liza, I'm good. How are you doing?
2: I'm good. I, I feel like you were traveling again recently. Where were you?
1: Oh my gosh, I, I've been I had a little bit of travel and this year I'm doing a, a cookbook. So got some great spring plans, but I was able to go down to Charleston uh, this past weekend for 48 hours and I I really wanted fresh eyes on Charleston. Uh, and the reason I, I was there and, and thanks to Luke at Explore Charleston and Kat as well for, for hooking me up some of the, the city's best chefs and, and restaurants and, and being my, my, sage, my, 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 my sage advice for, for the trip. But um, they have a new food festival they're launching in September, making this city that's not one of our largest in population cities, but, but an important city. It's one of the few that has two major food festivals in it. It's pretty, pretty impressive, I think, to, to think about that.
2: Yeah. I like that. I've never been to Charleston, but I've heard great things about the food down there too.
1: Well, let's go on a little bit of a tour, but let's set some context. I think it was important to do this because Charleston, um, again, it has a festival, the Charleston Wine and Food in March and the Food and Wine Classic in Charleston in September. So they're kind of spaced out. The March one is coming up, but you know, I, I got to know Charleston initially um, in around 2015. Um, I did an event down there for Koreatown with Dookie, with Brooks Wrights and, and I, I got to Brooks, but Sean Brock is important. He's an important figure in Charleston. Um, Sean um, was the chef at McCrady's and later Husk, and he was part of this new Southern cuisine movement that really kind of took shape around 2007, 2008. And it kind of lasted for almost a decade. And I'm not going to say that there was a pre and post Sean Brock moment, but it's important to contextualize the South, the way low country cuisine became a national thing through Sean's work, and then many of the uh, the chefs who worked with Sean at McCready's and McCready's in Husk. Um, so I really wanted to, I want to contextualize that through this tour because um, there are some alumni of Husk that I'm going to mention, but you have to you have to really mention Sean. And Sean no longer operates really a restaurant in Charleston, he doesn't live there anymore. More and um, he's not part of the scene as much. Um, But what's refreshing is that it's been kind of a hard reboot from the Sean Brock, you know, new South movement. Uh, I think we have, as food media, have moved on from covering the Southeast as much as on a national level. But it's kind of we're coming back to it because what I found was certainly some surprises. I found a a a place doing vegetarian sisig, uh, a Filipino place, is nominated for a beard. I found barbecue from Texas from south carolina from puerto rico um i got to go and and have a meal at fig mike Latta's legendary uh, restaurant that really like sean's became a real focal point of this new southern movement um i got i went to bakery so i want to go on this little journey with you and tell you about it and uh, i just want to get your take on like what i'm saying maybe we'll go a little back and forth
2: yeah, I'd love to hear more about those spots. I think the first thing that comes to mind when we're talking about like the legacy of kind of contemporary southern cuisine is the way that heritage crops and like animals have been kind of elevated as a part of that. And I guess I'd be interested to know if you're seeing any of those kind of ingredients or techniques that are still being used in this kind of different era of places.
1: I'm glad you mentioned that. And of course, the Gulagichi culture and the lowland um, culture is is prominent in in all of these restaurants. Um, And, you know, I talked to Rodney Scott, um, who does a real South Carolina barbecue, but I think low country cuisine is certainly part of his ethic um, at his restaurants. And yeah, it is about like the Anson Mills moment too, Mm -hmm. you know, the heritage uh, grits. And of course, um, the movement for a Carolina gold rice, like real Carolina gold, not the label Carolina gold that JJ Johnson has written extensively about in his great work um, is prominent in Charleston. So, Thank you for reminding me about the agriculture big part of the b- b- about this uh, this conversation.
2: Yeah, I would think of like Bene seed as well as Benet. being something that maybe you would have encountered.
1: Yeah. So let's let's talk about restaurants. And I'm I'm kind of going not in the order I visited them and really I'm not quantifying these restaurants. I'm not going to say best or worst or whatever. These are just all highlights. And I think the restaurant that captured the most buzz before the trip and really followed through is called Verns. Um, and Vern's has been recognized by the Beard Foundation, Bethany and Dano Hines run it. They're vets of John and Vinny's, uh, but they're natives of, uh, of South Carolina, I believe, or the, the region. And I would say hands down, it's one of the highlights of the trip. Uh, I had a, a, a rabbit Campanelli, which was like, Fully black pepper, all the way in the best way. I had escargot out of the shell with tarragon, the best grilled pork with lion's mane, sweet potatoes, and truffles. I thought the way they're doing this contemporary Italian rooted Mediterranean cuisine, but they're doing like a sourdough flatbread that almost felt like naan. They had a mandarin granita that you break into and you have a creme fraiche. Um, it's like a creamsicle, but you know, and it, obviously, there's been riffs on creamsicles for years, and this is cl- truly the the best orange d- d- dessert I've ever had.
2: Wow! And when you say break in, does that mean that it it looks like an orange on the plate?
1: It could. I, it was low light, and maybe they were going for that. Um, I could. That's a good question. But you know, when I say break in, I'm like going through the granita, the icy, 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 icy. And then you hit like the well of creme fresh, and like the texture and temperature of the creme fresh um, made it a very, very desirable moment. And it's like one of those like all world desserts. Amazing. So yeah, Vern's, I could say more. I'm hoping to have Bethany and Dano on the podcast. Shouts to those guys.
2: Yeah, it sounds great. I love a cream school vibe.
1: Okay. I mentioned barbecue and there's three barbecue stops that we made. Um, yeah, we went to a lot of spots
2: <laughs> in, <laughs> and, in 48 hours. Yeah.
1: In 40 hours. I think the reason I really, I went with my buddy Neil, so shout out to Neil. He, he, we went to Texas together he's an oldest friend and we just love like when we visit for this and I want to like tell listeners about Charleston about Texas about going on the road to Milwaukee I want to like kind of use this this podcast and, and our platform to talk about travel for food so I'm like trying to do the work They're calling it doing the work, right?
2: Yeah, eating at three barbecue places is a tough job, but somebody has to do it. Somebody's
1: got to do it. So let me report back that Lewis Barbecue, as advertised, is is like textbook Texas barbecue in South Carolina. So yeah, a little bit of like a a twist on the mind. It's not the pork-driven, vinegary, or even mustard-vinegary-driven barbecue that South Carolina is known for. It's more hill country-style textbook i loved what i what we had we had a great corn pudding with hatch chilies and you know john lewis really just a master of uh, of smoked meat he also has a a, more of a a text mix concept as well which i i didn't visit but i i liked uh conceptually i was able to go to a restaurant on day one like serendipitously which is something i don't really try to do and i have to give shouts to palmyra barbecue the chef Hector Garate is the uh, the proprietor. Hector grand pop-ups in the area and it was well regarded and I, I mentioned his name to many chefs and Hector seems to be like a real favorite. and like he's doing Puerto Rican style barbecue, which never have had. think it's it's really interesting with the few things we tried. beef cheeks with black pepper rub. and of course some rice and beans that were absolutely what I would expect from a Puerto Rican restaurant. Really nice to have that with smoked meat, a name to watch. And the final, barbecue stop and it was less of a of the food side um, more of like a catch-up and I, I just I have to stress how amazing of human being Rodney Scott is you've probably heard about Rodney Scott right
2: only the best things I would say yeah
1: yeah and it's all true and, and Rodney um, publishes with Clarkson Potter here uh, he's working on his second book and we'll have him in the studio and have a d- detailed conversation but got to spend two hours with Rodney on a Saturday sitting outside eating this incredible pork uh, barbecue pulled pork but also his chicken wings like shouts to those but just like catching up with Rodney about everything in the town meeting some of his staff the guy is just such a fun and smart and just like cool dude in the world of food I just love Rodney Scott just a nice nice human being
2: Yeah, I feel like um, it makes a lot of sense. You get to spend time with him there. And especially like looking at all of the different kinds of barbecue places in Charleston, it must be special to get to spend time with somebody that is kind of at the forefront of that.
1: Absolutely. And his story is cool, too. You know, he started way out um, in Hemingway, South Carolina, in the middle of the state. And he came to Charleston, opened this restaurant up has a, a really great staff. And again, one of the smartest operators I've, I've talked about, talked to, through food with, just the way he models his business. You know, whole hog barbecue is not easy. It's very physical work. And is the way that he thinks about his staff and equity and just like the way that his staff treated him in front of me and just on the side, as I've observed without me in the room, it was just obviously this guy is doing it right.
2: Oh, I love to hear that. Yeah. And I want to hear about the bakeries that you went to. Yeah,
1: thanks for, uh, for getting us there because Welton's Tiny Bake Shop really tiny first off it's a tiny counter um uh, but the case was packed and i have to say getting a savory danish at like nine in the morning with seppesad and hot honey is kind of what i want and i loved this dish it was so good
2: I love the savory Danish. I don't think I've ever had one with sopressata. It sounds like an elevated pizza bite in the uh, best
1: way. 100%. It was exactly kind of po- channeling that Polly G's Hot Honey Slice. They did a Queen Amon, which is textbook, kolache. And they also do pizzas in the alley on weekends. Tiny little spot. But Welton's is definitely a favorite amongst many of the chefs and, and food community. And I'm so happy to stop by. We also did the thing where you get up at like 7 a.m. and just leave leave the hotel. And uh, and and just get on your way, and it's like the best way to do food travel.
2: Is so you started the day at the bakery.
1: Yeah, we did, but we got there really early, and we didn't have to wait in line.
2: That's pretty cool. I can't say that I'm normally the kind of person who can get out of bed that early, but I'm glad that you were and that you can report back to us about that.
1: Liz, it's called doing the work.
2: I know someone's got to do it. You've
1: got to run in in the morning too. Oh, and speaking of hotels, I want to shout out the Spectator Hotel. Uh, great location. I, I really, for the amenities that they they gave us and they, they provided breakfast. And I just think if I'm going to, there's a lot of choices in hotels, but Spectator was was really, really great. Um, what else do you want to talk about? What do you want to know about Charleston? Just ask me a question.
2: Well, is the weather as nice as I would imagine this time of year?
1: It is actually a great point. Weather is important factor with Charleston. My previous three times in Charleston was in the summer. And hot. it's hot. Yeah, it's very hot. And it's humid and it's not as desirable, though. If you wear shorts and you hydrate, it's a totally great place to visit. But yeah, in January, February, March, these early part of the year, best time to visit.
2: Perfect time. Really.
1: And I'm sure September is nice too. But I think, I honestly think March is probably the best time to visit. It's not too cold. Um, I mean, it was like not cold at all. To them, it was cold, but whatever. I
2: guess it's all relative, you know? Like for us East Coasters, I'm sure it's very nice.
1: I know. All right. Let's 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 talk about Mike Lotta. You know, I've gotten to know Mike, you know, briefly at food festivals over the years. And I think Mike Lotta is a real institution in Charleston. Uh, and Fig is his is kind of, uh, I would say his flagship, though the ordinary is... Well regarded as more, I would say more. He does more experimental cuisine there. Um, it's more of a cocktail lounge and bar forward place. But Fig, I'd never been to. Um, <laughs> the model's food is good, which is you know feels like very retro. It's like was like food is good. It's very hippie. Um, but this is hardly a hippie joint. It's a well conceived bistro doing this kind of cuisine that is classic in the, in, the, in the highest form. We had pan sauteed grouper with caraflex, which was like bathed in brown butter and just felt like a very rich seafood dish, but using local grouper. I love the ricotta gnocchi, which, you know, again, very classic cooking, great to take your fam. In the summer, which I missed, is this tomato tart that's legendary. And, you know, I'm going to leave it there. Mike's going to come on the show. It's somebody I've always wanted to talk to and a real institution in Charleston, Mike Latta.
2: I can't wait to listen to that episode.
1: Let's talk about 167 Raw. I'm just like going through all these places and let's use this as a little tour. But 167, Dookie and I, Dookie Hong, my co author in Koreatown, we did an event down there. We went to their old location and it was, uh, we had like the, it's kind of modeled after a New England. Uh, seafood shack mm-hmm. in Charleston, so kind of funneling this like idea of like the the lobster roll, the shrimp roll, using low country products, very unique place. And I think if you know, you know, with one sixty seven restaurants and one sixty seven raw. To me, what I like about what they do, and this is my third time visiting, is sauces really tremendous way they they do ceviches and and raw fish and seafood with the saucing using fruits, using acid. And it's just a really consistently cool place. And of course, if you want oysters, this is where you go.
2: And what's the vibe? Is it like pretty casual? Is it close to the water?
1: It's in the central kind of downtown, penins- the, the center of the peninsula of Charleston. Charleston is like a very small peninsula with outer, you know, neighborhoods that are not in the peninsula. So that's kind of the, the dynamic there. But I would call this like casual, but very... Soigne, very like chefy, y
2: mm-hmm.
1: uh, but, but, but not the intimidating kind of seafood you might find at other places. Um, I have a few more stops um, that I want to call out. One is uh, Cultura, which is a GM Spirit semi-finalist. I, I loved seeing what they're doing. Um, it's a Filipino restaurant um, that is kind of pushing the boundaries for Filipino cuisine for me. Um, I, I actually went to Knox recently, and I, I'd say in the similar vein, it's like this super savory um, very creative ways of, of rethinking classic Filipino cuisine. I had a vegetarian sisig with these seasoned carrots kind of like playing off of like carrots can be pork jowl and pork face the way sisig is traditionally served. And I loved it. It was super well seasoned. We also had pork meatballs at like 10 in the morning. <laughs> not going not gonna to hate on that with garlic rice. Um, so we only went for brunch and it, it just hit us with the aroma of Filipino restaurant walk-in. It's got a cool counter space and outdoor seating. So it's a small sample size for us, but I, I feel Kultura is a name to remember in Charleston.
2: I love to hear that. That sounds like definitely if I was going to have meatballs for breakfast, where I would go. <laughs>
1: yeah, I, it's your vibe. I, I, I thought like... I've, and, and you know, I went to some places I'm not mentioning because I didn't love them. So there's like there's actually some unnamed places on here that will just leave leave to the imagination. Um, and I, I you know, when you see uh you know breakfast filipino cuisine you never know what you're gonna get it could be a range of quality it's like any cuisine it's like if you're seeing pancakes you can go to a crappy ass pancake house that is flappy bullshit pancakes where you have like the best pancake experience you know like any restaurant um it's it's hard to know what you're gonna get until you get there and this promise of a filipino brunch was was really really like resonated with us when we heard about it and man did they absolutely crush it with it so good
2: did you eat anywhere else in the city? I feel like you ate everywhere.
1: Yeah, we went to the places that were unnamed. That <laughs> unnamed. Um, no, I, actually, and I'm joking. If, if I did meet you and I didn't mention your place, maybe we'll we'll chit-chat later. I might be forgetting a place. But there is actually one I want to mention. I'm going to close here. And I mentioned Brooks Wrights and Aaron Wrights in the beginning. But they are two of the coolest individuals. I've, I've known them for years. We did an event with them at Leon's Oyster Shack. And I, I'm going to have Brooks on the show at some point and talk about his great sub stack and, and some of the big ideas he has in food. I, I just think he's got great taste. I got to meet Aaron finally. Little Jack's Tavern. It's just like they're doing a classic, uh, I would call it like a little bit of a, I would say Minetta Tavern in the South. Uh, dark uh, interior boxing motif, but definitely, definitely, definitely the best burger I've had in the South. It's, it's really, really, really consistent. I've had it three times now and, it's just a tremendous restaurant and shouts to those guys for keeping this restaurant finely tuned.
2: What kind of burger style is it? Is it a smash burger?
1: It's um yes, it's like a, a definitely a one temperature burger. Um I think the but the bun size is what I like the most and I'm gonna don't quote me, but I'm gonna say it's in the brioche realm. In <laughs> okay. the brio- I, I think that's what it was. Um Is it ample or it's no, smaller? It's it's like the perfect size huh. with like an overflowing plate of like perfectly fried fries. Um, it's like the kind of pub burger you want that isn't going to, it's like a PJ Clark's classic. I hope it's like, I think PJ is probably a little bit of a channel there. It's like an old New York pub burger. Um, but Brooks is going to tell me on this episode about some exciting plans. He's got we were we We're building about the His future restaurant plans to be determined later. Okay. That's like the exhale moment. Like that was Charleston. Any any final questions? Any thoughts? Any any? Th- Do you want to go to Charleston?
2: I would love to go to Charleston. I want to know if you could have like one thing that you had in Charleston for lunch today. What would it be?
1: I would say at Vern's, it was definitely the the pork uh, loin that was headlines main it's not really lunchy stuff but man i just can't stop thinking about that special It was so good
2: no it sounds really good i'll think about that when i go to the sweet green across the street for lunch today
1: oh yeah i'm hitting sweet green too yeah (laughs) oh great i'll catch you there i'll catch you at sweet green (laughs) definitely definitely not not uh not the cuisine i just had but uh i definitely feel like probably sweet green will be in charleston at some point
2: oh i'm sure well you know we're back to midtown but thanks for for letting me pretend we were somewhere else for a little bit
1: i appreciate you hearing me out thanks eliza